it's going to be. All right, let's get our Bibles out and open to the book of Jonah. Jonah, you can grab that hardback Bible in front of you there, that black one, turn to page 1067. Or you can go to Matthew and back up eight books. Or you can just start going through the minor prophets. When you get to Obadiah, Jonah's next. If you get to Micah, you went too far. But you can't be skimming fast because it's only a couple pages. I heard a story this week about a young lady who was on a college campus and she was evangelizing, uh, doing some public evangelism. And so an atheist proponent came up to her and said, I want to ask you a question. She said, okay. He said, do you believe the Bible? She said, yes. He said, do you believe it all the Bible? She said, yes, sir, I do. So he said, well, do you believe the book of Jonah? She said, yes. He said, well, explain to me how a fish can swallow a man and he can live for three days in the belly of that fish. And she said, well, sir, I don't know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah and find out for you. <laughs> and he said, uh-huh, and what if Jonah's not in heaven? And she said, then you can ask him. Amen. You know, I've had just about all the bad news I can take. I can't even, if I, I see the news, I want to run, right? Whew. But uh, be encouraged today. There's a lot of wonderful, amazing things going on, especially in the life of our church. Uh, today marks the uh, first day. For Harbor City, our church plant meeting in their new location. So we're celebrating with them today as they're meeting in uh, Anniston Elementary School for the very first time. So that's very exciting. Next Sunday, we have our fall festival where we are expecting uh, two to 3,000 people to come. Many of them unchurched. We get to love on them and minister to them. It's a huge day in the life of our church every year. We're excited about that. Um, there's Ample opportunity for you to be involved if you want to be involved in the fall festival, but you're maybe you're new or you just don't know what. Don't worry, just come next week, and uh, Pastor Matt's going to have a, a meeting right after church for everybody who, if you want to serve, we'll plug you in, okay, and give you a place to serve, and you can be a part of that. And then you can see we're kicking off our Operation Christmas Child Shoebox Drive. And it's just a busy time of year, but this is the time of year we got to get focused on spreading the gospel. This is a wonderful, simple way to do that. My challenge to you this year is for if every family will just uh, do one box for every person represented in your household, then we'll achieve our goal of 750 boxes this year. I think that's very doable for our fellowship. And uh, so let's pray that God will encourage us to be about spreading the gospel because everywhere these boxes go the gospel go with it amen so let's do that together okay let's pray and see what God wants to speak to us this morning about through the book of Jonah let's pray together father we come now to your word recognizing that this is you speaking and lord you meant these words for us and they will change us and they will mold us and shape us awaken us and even transform us if we'll allow them so God I pray that you'll give us ears to hear that we will come before you now free our minds of all distractions and focus upon you and you alone and allow you through the power of your spirit to speak to us that you might be glorified in our life we cannot imagine the things that you desire to do. Help us today to not resist it, but to embrace it. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, uh, I think based on some of your facial expressions last week, some of you are a little bit surprised. Maybe your idea of the book of Jonah has been shaped more by uh, VeggieTales cartoons than it has been the biblical account of Jonah. Jonah was the perfect church member. We need to erase from our mind that God went to some 
rebel outsider and called him to go to Nineveh. And he, that's not at all what happened. Jonah was a, uh, a prophet of God. He was a very famous prophet of God. He was revered uh, by the people around him. And he was a person who, to me, fits the perfect mold of someone who would make uh, following God look easy, which we addressed last week is impossible. So you don't want to be a person who the people around you think you make following God look easy because the God of the Bible is not easy to follow. Amen. Amen. I know you don't like it, but that doesn't make it not true. So let's agree with it, right? Right. Okay. So the story of Jonah is going to confront us this morning. You can get your listening guides out with another disturbing possibility. This morning, the disturbing possibility is that we can learn about God and at the same time grow distant from God. Here's my observation. In 25 years of walking with the Lord and doing ministry, I've seen people become really good at God talk and cease talking to God. We don't want to be a people that study the, all the intricacies of doctrine but lose our passion. So when I look at Jonah... I see a contemporary Christian church member who is suffering from the disease of spiritual sleepwalking. That's what I see in Jonah. He's embraced a safe God that doesn't ask anything of him, doesn't require anything from him, doesn't really give him anything. It's just, a, it's just part of uh, his existence. And so he gets as much God as he wants, and God gets as much of him as he wants God to have. But you see, that God will never drive you to your knees in hungry, desperate prayer. That God will never set your feet on fire and fierce determination to accomplish something you never thought you could accomplish for the glory of God. It won't happen. So... This God, the God of the Scripture, God isn't nice. He isn't nice. He isn't safe. He is a consuming fire. The God of the Bible, contrary to what we may think, is not mainly concerned that we'll arrive safely at our destination or that we will get a good parking place when we're going to the mall during the Christmas season or even that the weather will cooperate with our activities or, or our desires or likes. That's not his main concern. The main business of the God of the Bible is making us holy. That's his, that's his job. That's what he's doing. So the question is, if God is concerned with making us holy, and if we are people who would consider ourselves either Christians or at least open to Christianity, then why do we run? Why do we want God but only from a distance? That's really the question. Why do we run? We want to be close but not too close. We want to know enough but not too much. And here's what happens. When you really start to read the book of Jonah... It's going to stir up the dark suspicion within all of us that, that God's somehow going to ask you to do what you least want to do or command you to go where you least want to go. 
I want you to think about that for a second. You know that thing way down in you that's afraid that if you fully surrender to God, He's going he's to require something of you that you don't want to do or can't do? So what you're saying is, is that God's not good. Because if He was good, He would only want what is best for you. But what we think is that we know what's best for us. You ever wondered where that dark suspicion comes from? Well, there's a place in Scripture that addresses it head on. There is one verse in Scripture that I am convinced I referenced this text ten times during the course of every year of preaching. But in the parable of the talents... This will come up on the screen in a minute. But the, at the, remember, the, uh, the servants got different talents. But there's one particular servant who was, a, who was an unprofitable servant who got one talent. And rather than investing the talent and using the talent, he buried the talent and didn't do anything. And so all the other servants, they multiplied the talent and received the blessing from the master when he returned. But the one, ta- the one talent servant received the wrath of the master. And when the master came to him and said, why did you not invest your talent? I want you to look closely at at what he says. Matthew 25, 24, he says, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I don't trust you. I don't think you're good. I think you're going to call me to do something I don't want to do. And I think you're going to call me to go somewhere I don't want to go. So I buried it. Well, when you go home today, read the last verse of that parable and see what happened to him. See, sometimes God calls us to, to do something that maybe we would even say it's what we least want to do. Or it's something that at best maybe we just kind of don't want to do. But it reveals something in our heart. That before we somehow walked into this relationship without an understanding that God knows things that we don't know. And the the puzzling thing about it is, is that You can't read a single section of Scripture and not see God working behind the scenes for the betterment of His people and them being oblivious to it the entire time, right? But somehow we just refuse to allow that to translate into our lives if we're not careful. And so what we do is we become like Jonah. Good, faithful Church-going people. And if we're honest, if that describes you, then you already know. You're bored. There's no excitement. And God's called you to do things and you've just ignored them or you've just kept them a secret or just denied them away. And so like we saw last week, we know what God does when that happens. He just stops speaking. Because he's already told you. And until you do what he's already told you, you're not going to hear anything from him. And so we said every week, this builds on the week before. Last week we said that activity is a poor substitute for obedience. So now what's the next truth we need to understand about obedience? Obedience is not for his sake, but for our good. It's our own good. You see... We oftentimes will misunderstand obedience as we are obeying God because that's what God wants us to do. God needs this to be accomplished, so we're doing it so that it will be accomplished. No, if God needs it to be accomplished, He's going to accomplish it with or without us. Obedience is for us. It's for us. 
It's not for God. God needs no help. Amen. He doesn't need any help with what he's doing. None whatsoever. So this is where the real puzzle in Jonah is. It leaves us sort of scratching our head and wondering, why is God so deeply concerned about the wicked people of Nineveh and this wayward runner Jonah? Well, why is God relentlessly pursuing somebody who's griping and complaining, whose heart is filled with apathy and prejudice? He's self-absorbed. Why him? Isn't there someone better that God could bother himself with? Why would God pursue him to the ends of the earth and the bottom of the sea? Why would the God of the universe keep insisting that this man Jonah awake from his spiritual slumber? Why would God chase a man who keeps running? That's a great question. So in verse 4 of chapter 1, we see that God sends a great storm on the sea. And this mighty storm comes up and the ship was about to be broken up. And so there's a clear, undeniable, evident picture of God's direct intervention in Jonah's life. Instead of letting him go, God sends the storm. He sends it. This storm comes from God. Storms don't come by chance. Do you know that? They don't come by chance. Hebrews chapter 1. Remember we studied through the book of Hebrews? So that was like a year and a half ago we were in chapter 1. Verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person and upholding how many things is he upholding? All the things by the word of his power. All the things. So there's no storm by, by chance. Then remember in Mark chapter 4 when the disciples end up in a storm and Jesus is asleep in the boat. Remember that situation? And they wake up and they fear exceedingly, the Bible says. And they say to one another, well, who can this be who even the wind and the sea obey? Who, who is this one who can speak? And the seas calm. Okay, so when storms come into our lives... We face an important choice in what we believe. And you need to understand that storms come into our lives for many different reasons. This particular storm has come into Jonah's life. This is a correcting storm. Sometimes you have storms that come into your life to correct you. Jonah is rebellious and wayward. His heart is idle and cold. And so God sends a storm to wake him up and to correct him. But that's not the only reason that God sends storms. Sometimes he sends storms to perfect you. You have correcting, you have perfecting. Think about Joseph, for example, in the book of Genesis. It seemed like everywhere he went, he ran into a storm. And he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was trying to be faithful. In fact, he kept making all the right decisions. And yet it kept going wrong, wrong, wrong. Why? Because God was putting perfecting storms in his life to prepare him to be what? The second most powerful man on earth. All of those storms were storms perfecting him and preparing him for the great things that God had in store. Sometimes storms come into your life and they're to correct you for your sin or your apathy. Sometimes they come into your life to perfect you and to prepare you for what God has ahead. Sometimes storms come into your life even to protect you from things that are either around you or coming in the future. Some of you, your lives have been literally transformed because of a storm that moved you out of a bad situation or a bad relationship or whatever. Some of you in the room came to faith in Christ through a storm. I did. And that was a protecting storm. And so storms come into our lives for all sorts of different reasons. But we have to be careful. Because it would be easy to jump from this reality to some conclusion that every single storm is caused because of a judgment from God. Then you become one of these weirdos that the news media always finds every time there's any kind of a natural disaster who's pronouncing some sort of judgment to which 
How, they don't, how do they know that? So, let's be careful. We don't want to make that big mistake. Remember, in, in that story in Mark chapter 4 where the disciples are in the boat in the storm, think about it. They are in a storm because of their obedience to God. God said, get in the boat, we're crossing over. So they got in the boat and crossed over, right? Jonah's in a storm because of his disobedience. So sometimes it's one way, sometimes it's the other way. But needless to say, storms rage in our lives, in all of our lives. And we're going to find ourselves trying to figure out what's going on. So the first thing you do when you find yourself in a storm is examine your heart. And ask yourself, do I need a correcting storm? Is there sin and rebellious? Is there something God's spoken to me or told me or shown me that I'm resistant to do? That would be a great place to start. See, Jonah knew the reason for this storm. He knew this storm was a result of his disobedience. That was clear as a bell to him. He absolutely knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Verse 5, so the mariners were afraid, these sailors... And every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship and lay down and went to sleep. So the sailors, they're sailors. So they know how to sail. They, they, storms aren't new to them. This isn't some unforeseen thing, some new experience they're not aware of. They know what to do in a storm when they're sailing. But this is a really, really bad storm. And so they feel like they might die. So what do they do? They start calling out to their own God. They're all pagans. These are all Gentiles of different backgrounds with different gods. And so they start calling out to their own God. And I noticed something interesting in verse 5. It says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each one cried out to his own God, And, you notice that? And. And he threw the cargo and the ship out over the end of the sea. Now, hang on a second. What does that word and tell you? How much faith did they have in their own God? You see, they're like, okay, call to your God while they're hurling all the heavy stuff overboard. In other words, they're already going, I know your God ain't going to work and mine's not either. So let's just throw all this stuff over. But they're just trying to do every, they're going through every formality they can go through, right? That's all they're doing. I mean, this isn't, they have zero faith in their God. Zero. The equivalent to this, I was thinking like, okay, what would be the equivalent to this in Scripture? It would be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when Nebuchadnezzar was going to throw them into the fiery furnace, they're like, hold on a second. So they put on their fire suit, and they're like, okay, go ahead, right? And so then I was thinking about that, and so then I went to Daniel 3, and I read it, and I got kind of tickled because it's sort of in the Scripture. Let me show you. So in Daniel chapter 3, here's what they said to Nebuchadnezzar. They said, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Uh, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. Right? But then down in verse 21, look at what it says. I never noticed this before. It says, Then these men were bound in their coats, trousers, turbans, and other garments and were cast into the midst of the fiery furnace. Now, why does it say that? So that we know they didn't put on a fire suit. That's why it's there. I was like, thank you, Lord. See, I was just thinking about that, and it's right there. Amen. So they're crying out to their gods, but it's half-hearted at best because they're emptying out everything trying to it kind of sounds a lot like religion today you just sort of you know it's just basically some form of self-expression you know what I mean your your spirituality can just be whatever you want to mold it into you know the things that you think matter the most you just sort of group all that together with your opinions your values and your Traditions, and you can sort of make your own spiritual relationship or religion. Well, hmm, that's a completely different story than what the Scripture shows. See, 
the boat's falling apart. It's a life or death moment. And the only thing that matters is survival. And yet their gods couldn't do anything to help them. See? Nothing. So they're about to die. And the tragedy is, is that they go before their gods and the answer is no. Yeah. That's a tragedy. See, gods that are formed in our own imagination and experience and they're based on our own hopes and fears, well, they can never exceed the limits of our own power because they're made up in our own power. What we need is a God way beyond our power. Verse 6, So the captain comes to Jonah and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? That's the way I've been waking up my kids lately. It works great. What do you mean, sleeper? They're like, what is wrong with you? Arise and call on your God. It's a fantastic way to start every day. There's Cheerios waiting for you in the kitchen. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. So now they know that he's an Israelite. They know that he serves a different God than they do. Now, they've already thrown everything overboard. They've already tried their gods. Nothing's worked. Their gods can't help them. And the only thing it's done is magnified the very tragic fact that the one man on the ship that knows the true and living God is asleep and indifferent to the fact that they're about to perish. So think about this. People who do not know God today are calling out desperately to gods who can't save them. While the ones who know the sovereign Lord who saves, in some cases, is asleep. See, surrounded by unbelievers who desperately needed to know the Lord, Jonah had nothing to offer. He had nothing to offer. Think about the unbelievers in your life. If you don't pray for them, who will? Who's going to pray for them? God loves them. How do I know that? Well, first of all, He put you in their life. Yeah. The world can't pray for itself. Who's it going to pray to? The God these sailors prayed to? What's going to happen? See, only the church can intercede for the lost. So if we're asleep, what are the consequences? What are the consequences? It's sort of the beautiful, difficult thing about living life here, isn't it? I don't mean here on earth. I mean here, right here in this fellowship. Is that you really have to work to be asleep. I mean, we have families that are just uprooted their, their whole lives, their kids, everything, left the church they love to go and plant a church among people. Because why? Because we have a deep burden for people who don't know Jesus and who live just on the other side of our county. And so we plant a fellowship there. And that this morning, they're going to have their very first service in their new location. And that we've already seen God working and doing amazing things. That thousands of people are going to come next Sunday to a fall festival. Why? Think of how many years we had a fall festival for our own kids. Just for our kids. You couldn't even come unless you dressed up 
in, an, in a Bible costume, you weren't even allowed to come. Basically, it's a giant sign that said, if you're not one of us, do not come. And so, for years, 20 kids would come. Last year, over 2,000 people came as we just loved them and served them, loved their children, were a blessing to them. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, the question was asked, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Tonight, we'll finalize and vote on our budget. If you remember, 10 years ago, I said that my goal was to lead us to a church, to be a church where we give 10% of every dollar that we receive to Great Commission work. You seen that budget out there? 25% of our budget is to Great Commission work. That's amazing. That is amazing. That doesn't happen. There are hard things going on all around us. This church is filled with people who are foster parents. It's, it's filled with people who are CASA volunteers. Listen, you can't be asleep to the needs around you. You, you, can't, you can't do that. If you, if you have time, you need to be doing something with that time. See, we realize you cannot, you cannot, you can't live in Harrison County and know there are children that are being abused and not do anything about it. You can't do that. We can't do that. God won't let us. You can be a CASA worker. You can do that. You can step up and, and embrace the reality of the plight of what is happening around you and be a part of the solution because God has called us to do that. You see, the great danger in spiritual sleepwalking is that what happens, we get into this coasting mode and we miss the very reason for which we exist. Think about it. We exist for the express purpose of Letting our light so shine that the world around us sees our good works and glorifies our Father in heaven. You know that? That's why we're here. But guess what? That is impossible if you're oblivious to the needs of the people around you. It's impossible. You see the, 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 the predicament? You see the danger? Jonah is surrounded by people lost and going to hell in a death situation. And he's so wrapped up in himself, he's, he's not even worried about it. What? How many people are sitting in some church somewhere this morning, surrounded by people who are going to hell, and they're just going through, it's just another day, just another week, it's just another... Explain that. How is that possible? The captain comes and asks him, Hey, bro, wake up. The God you serve. He starts asking him questions. Now, think about it. The captain didn't need Jonah's help driving the ship. But he needed his prayers. He needed his God. That's what he needs. The world, it never wants believers to... You know, no one in the world's coming up to you and saying, here, why don't you take the wheel to my life and just, you know... No, they're not going to do that. But when trouble comes, when a storm comes, when the ship's breaking up, when they think they're going to drown, then they need somebody to pray for them. They need somebody to help them. They need answers. They realize, man, what's going on here? Your unbelieving friends, listen, they're not, 
They're not looking for you to give them direction on how they need to live their lives until the storm comes. I mean, the most sensitive moment in your life is when storms crash into people who don't know God around you. You should crash right into their lives. I mean, that is the moment that you cannot miss. And my goodness, if we serve a God where trials and hardships, storms create opportunities, has there ever been a better time to be a Christian than right now? I mean, come on. But it's shocking. Jonah didn't even pay. Look, the captain rebukes him, and Jonah, Jonah doesn't get up and start praying. No. He rebukes him, and, and Jonah's just, look, Jonah is so locked down in his resentment, and why is he, all he can think about is why God won't do things the way he wants it done. See that? How many people are rendered utterly ineffective in the kingdom of God? Don't share their faith. When was the last time you led somebody to faith in Christ? How much time have you spent thinking about... But you pray for all the things in your life you want to change. All the things that you want fixed the way you think they ought to be. And so every night you pray, God, will you... Do this and do that and do this and do that. And yet, the very thing that he's called you to do, you don't do. Huh. Thinking, well, maybe I'm just out there on a limb somewhere, you know? Then I remember this quote by Tom Rainer. He says, uh, the main reason that people leave the church is because they have an entitlement mentality rather than a servant mentality. That's one of those quotes that nothing could be more true and yet nothing could be more painful to the heart of God. So in his book, he lists all the reasons that the top reason, out of thousands and thousands of people, he listed all the reasons that they give. And these are the top reasons. Reason number one, the worship leader refuses to listen to me about the songs that I want played. Chris, it's your fault. <laughs> no one in the church visited me. I didn't want to support the building program that they wanted. Number four, I, was, I missed for two weeks and nobody called me. Number five, they moved the service times, the worship times, and messed up my schedule. Boy, that's a difficult situation, I tell you. Man. I told my pastor to go visit my cousin, and he never did. Now, he didn't have anything else to do. So he goes on to say that we've turned church membership into country club membership. Yeah. You pay your dues, and then you're entitled to something in return. Yet, the aim of the gospel, see, I read the Bible. I know what the Bible says. And the aim of the gospel is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. Yeah. And so if you read what the Bible has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul lays out, the function of the church and the way it's supposed to be. The whole entire passage has nothing to do with what we should receive and everything to do with what we're supposed to give and how we're supposed to serve. But somehow, I started reading down the list trying to get to something. It's interesting. Nobody got mad and left the church because they didn't give enough money to missions. Nobody got mad and left the church because the pastor just had... Not enough gospel or nobody. It was all about me, 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 me. Millions of people calling themselves Christians. Now think about it. You know the term Christian? Started in the church of Antioch that we've been studying in the book of Acts. 
It's to be called a Christian was a, was a derogatory term. It meant little Christ. You're like a little Christ. So millions of people call themselves Christians. We, we all refer to ourselves, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a little Christ. But yet, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So, how can you be a little version of him without a servant's heart? You can't be. You can't be. You can't be a little Christ. You can't be. So here's the question. What will move the church out of the shallow waters of self-interest to pursue a costly ministry for the advance of Christ's kingdom around the world? What will do that? What will do that? I think it takes courage and conviction. I think it takes a willingness to die on the altar of the gospel. And to reject. You have to reject all of the imposed expectations of the world around you. You can't do that. See, this is what we think. We think in the back of our mind that when a storm comes, we can just call on God. That's what we think. It's okay. I mean, I'm a Christian. Jonah's a Christian. Jonah's God's prophet. So if he gets in a storm, he can just call on God. It's it's just that simple, or is it? Because he doesn't call on God. And why doesn't he? Well, because he has secret sin in his life. And this secret sin has caused resentment towards God. And so long as this sin remains in his heart and in his life, Prayer's not going to happen, is it? No. So what has God got to do? Just let him die? Say, well, I tried, bro, but what does a relentless God do in a situation where his servant is unable to pray because he has secret sin in his life? Well, look at the next verse. Look at verse 7. So they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and it fell on Jonah. Now, who caused the lot to fall on Jonah? Well, that's an easy question. God did. And why did God do that? To expose his sin. So that Jonah would repent. So that Jonah could call out to God. Look at how good God is. Look at how gracious and how far God goes. I mean, what a breathtaking example of not only his sovereignty, but of his love and devotion. Jonah is doing nothing to deserve God's grace and mercy. Nothing. He's doing everything to thwart it. And yet God continues to pursue and so God exposes Jonah's sin, which is then the beginning of hope. That's when things start to turn around. See, because the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. He loves Jonah. So He exposes it in verse 8. And so then they said to Him, Well, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? I mean, now... The lots fall on him. They got questions. Not surprisingly. Well, they want to know about Jonah. They want to know about his God. They want to know why he's running. They want to know what's going on. Their life hangs in the balance. So Jonah said to them in verse 9, Well, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, we haven't heard a spiritual word out of Jonah, have we? Until what happened? The lot fell upon him. And now, 
He has a heart to speak up. And he tells him about his God. Now, he could have said that just a few minutes ago on the bottom of the ship, but he didn't. You know why? He couldn't. The point I'm trying to get you to see, folks, listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. If you think that you can just coast along and ignore the voice of God and you're going to get in a storm and he's going to hear you, you are sorely mistaken. That is not at all who the God of Scripture is. That's not how that works. And you'll find yourself in the bottom of a boat unable to speak. You'll ramble off words that will bounce off the ceiling. So he said to them, now look at what he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. I'm just telling you, if I'm a sailor, I'm slapping Jonah right there. You, you couldn't tell me that 30 minutes ago? I mean, wouldn't you waited till now to give me this information? All this time you've known that this is because of you? Now, how did Jonah... This is, there's some big questions that jump out right here. How did Jonah know that the sea would become calm if they threw him in? How... Could he know that? He didn't say maybe, possibly. He said, I already know. This is because of me, and if you throw me in, it'll stop. Now, how does he know? God told him. How else can a prophet know truth? How else? There's only one way to know. God told him. Now, what does that tell us? Again, the principle we've been talking about since we started this study. The minute Jonah's sin is exposed, now God speaks to him. Jonah, Jonah hadn't heard a word. You know why? Because he couldn't. He couldn't say a word. He couldn't hear a word because he was locked in his sin. Now, suddenly, the silence has ended. And God, listen, it's as if God has been waiting to give Jonah this word. He's like, Jonah, I love you. And the minute God can, God says, listen, this storm is because of you. So nevertheless, look at verse 13. The men rode hard to return to land. I mean, there is, you can write a book about what these verses teach us about culture. Nevertheless, they rode hard to reach dry land. But they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. So the men think that they can save themselves by their own effort. They get the word that now they, they know from the prophet what's going on. They know how he said they could solve the problem. But they think they can survive the storm without sacrifice. That's the key. That's what they think. They think they can survive the storm without sacrifice. Now, you would never do that, would you? No. When you're in a storm, the prayer you pray is, God, show me the sacrifice that I need to make so I can make it so the storm will quit. Isn't that what you say? Somehow the word sacrifice never comes up in that prayer, does it? It's just, stop the storm, please. Stop, stop. Can you stop it? Stop it now. Now would be good. Today would be a good day to stop it. Right? Hmm. So, all of this pride that's in these men is the same pride that's in every human heart that says, Oh, I can make it through the judgment of God. I can make it through this. They already know it's the judgment of God. They know it's on Jonah. And they're rowing the boat to try to get it there themselves. Like, I'm the captain of my own soul. As long as we think there's something we can do to save ourselves, we find ways to avoid surrender. I mean, we're going to dodge it. I mean, we're more slippery than Muhammad Ali. Boy, if we, we ain't surrendering. We're going to do everything in our power, but not surrender. 
We're going to try to, you know, move in God's direction. We're going to try to appease him. We're going to try to do everything but not surrender. That's the last straw to fall. But it's the turning point in the whole, the whole story, to me, turns on those four words. But they could not. But they could not. But they could not. That's the turning point. In every storm I've faced in my life. But I could not. When I finally lay down the oar. Stop trying to paddle myself out of it. Get out of the wheelhouse and let God take over. Verse 14, therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, you see, once they realized, but they had to try. They had to give it, they had to give it all they had. And then they cry out, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea. And what happens? Immediately the sea ceased from its raging. You see, the turning point for these men is the realization that they couldn't do it. It all turned right there. It's like a beautiful picture to point us to Jesus. The moment we realize that the storm of God's judgment is stronger than we are. The moment we realize that we can't. We can't in and of ourselves get through it or get out of it or even survive it. We don't have the ability to survive the storm of God's wrath on our own. No matter how hard we try. It'll never work. So God's judgment will sink us inevitably. Unless we're saved by the sacrifice of someone else. You see? You see the picture here? See on the cross... Jesus gave his life to deliver us from God's righteous judgment for our sin. He was rejected, cast out by men, yet he offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus brings up Jonah as a sign. But he's a better Jonah. You see, salvation has come to us only because the Lord turned the sign that was Jonah into the reality that is Jesus. See, in the place of the rebellious prophet Jonah. God sends the ultimate obedient prophet to redeem runaways like me and you. See, Christ was thrown into the storm of God's wrath. And it was through His sacrifice that we're saved. Just like this picture we see in Jonah. And so it, it begs the question, why didn't, why didn't Jonah throw himself into the sea? You see, God had told him what was going on. So why didn't Jonah just run and jump over the side and the storm would have ceased? Why did he tell the men they had to throw him over? Hmm. Well, we have to remember that we're following a God who's shaping every event 
in order to accomplish his perfect work, not only in Jonah, but in the lives around Jonah, the same way he's working in your life and my life. He wants to reveal the things that we most need to understand about him and about his purposes and ways and his priorities. And so the reason Jonah didn't throw himself overboard is, well, it's simple. Jesus didn't take his own life. He was crucified. He was crucified. And that truth is pictured in the crew throwing Jonah overboard. It's like the people chanting, give us Barabbas. And notice in verse 14 that they even say, before they hurl him overboard, they even say, don't charge us with innocent blood. They say he's innocent. Hmm. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? So they were guilty of throwing a man who had done them no wrong. Jonah had done them no wrong, personally, overboard. Just as we're guilty of crucifying an innocent Jesus on a cross. Just as throwing Jonah overboard calmed the storm, putting Jesus on the cross calmed the storm. See, salvation only comes through sacrifice. God could have done it any way He wanted to do it. But He wants you to know something. Salvation comes through sacrifice. Now, the big difference, of course, is that Jonah was thrown overboard on account of his own sin. And Jesus was thrown up on a cross on account of our sin. It didn't have anything to do with him. But he endured the punishment. And so there's Jesus stretched out on a tree. Suspended between heaven and earth and rejected by both. Truly a man without a country. But what is the result of that rejection that Jesus faced? Look, same result. Look at verse 16. Then the men, look at what happens to these sailors. They feared the Lord exceedingly. See that word Lord in your Bible? That's Yahweh. They refer to him in the personal name Yahweh. They fear the Lord exceedingly. And offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now, this is new information. Because if you remember, you can look back in verse 5. When the storm came and they thought they were going to die, the Bible says they were afraid. Which is different from fearing the Lord exceedingly, isn't it? So they're more in fear and awe now than they were when they thought they were going to die in the storm. They were afraid of dying in the storm. But now that they realize that the one they're dealing with is the God of heaven and the God of earth and the God of all creation, they're exceedingly afraid. And I love to hear people debate about what happened here to these sailors. I love when people talk about that. Because I'm fascinated when I hear people trying to talk about how, you know, this is some sort of a last ditch. Well, of course they, you know, gave sacrifices to the Lord because, you know, they were afraid to die. No, no, this isn't a foxhole conversion. You know that? This isn't one of those situations where people cry out to God because they're in impending doom, but then the doom passes and they go right back to their old way of life. No, no, pay attention to what's happening here. The doom has already passed. They're safe and sound. They have no reason to appease God. 
The storm's over. They can just go on about their business, but they don't. They stop. And they feared Yahweh God exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices and took vows. This is a whole different ballgame. You see, it's indicating that they're not seeking God for what he can do for them, but that they're seeking God because of his greatness and who he is. You, you remember earlier I was talking about the incident from Mark chapter 4 where Jesus is asleep in the boat and the disciples are caught in the storm? Well, if you know that passage, if you think about it, you, you notice what Jesus did when they woke him up? Jesus didn't, he didn't pray that the storm would stop. Did you notice that? You ever thought about that? What did he do? He woke up. He didn't pray that God the Father would stop the storm. He woke up and he spoke. And the storm stopped. Now, now why is that important? Because it tells us that Jesus has the power to speak and halt his circumstances. Doesn't it? Yes. And the response of the disciples who had seen Jesus do all sorts of things. I mean, feeding 5,000 people five minutes earlier. And yet their response is, oh, he's way bigger than we ever thought. He, with his words, can control his circumstances. So what is the implication of that? Well, what about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? And the agony of what lie before him, bearing down upon him. And the reality that he was about to, about to be alone, that his father was going to turn his back on him for the first and only time in all of eternity. That the weight of the sin of the world was bearing down upon him. And in that moment, all he had to do was speak a word and he could have bailed himself out. He could have spoke one word and he could have said, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. He could have in a second, he could have said no, but he didn't. He said yes. Think about that. He has the power to control his circumstances and yet in the midst of the greatest storm that's ever been, when blood is pouring out of his head in agony, he says, your will, Father, not mine. You see the love of this God? You see how much he loves us? I mean, maybe today for the very first time, you're like one of these sailors on board with Jonah, and you just come to the realization that the God of the universe is revealing himself to you. Like, it, it doesn't, I'm not talking about your church experience. I'm not talking about all the things of your past or your upbringing. I'm just talking about the God of the universe. Is speaking to you. And he's calling you to surrender yourself to him. Why would you do that? Because he had, he wasn't coerced into doing what he did for you. He wasn't pressured. How could you doubt a God who would willingly choose to give himself up 
for you. Maybe what God's doing this morning is He's He's speaking to you. Jonah, who's in spiritual slumber. And your rebellion is wrapped up in the fact that, let's be honest, you're playing it safe. You're trying to make God safe. I don't hear all the excuses that are in your head right now, but I assure you that God does. He hears them. Well, what I can tell you this morning is that no matter how hard you try, He's never, ever going to conform Himself to what you want Him to be. He's not trying to be your friend. He's your Lord. So I leave you with this. Jonah mistrusted the goodness of God. But he didn't know about the cross. He didn't know about that. What's our excuse? 